something that would be memorable, but also wouldn't turn into something that would just be lecturing about his life. And so one of the things as you go and, and investigate the life of Martin Luther King is the opportunity that people had to participate in, a, in protest in a non-violent, non-threatening way. And so what we're going to do for the next few minutes is just kind of create what that might be. And so those of you who have been given slips of paper, I ask you to come now forward. And after we do the protest, we're actually going to have a reader's theater. And so we'll be setting up for some things. Um, but you're going to get some signs that you'd see that would be at a protest. And we, I'll tell you when you can stand up and wave them and do kind of do whatever you might do. Um, because not that any of you ever participated in a protest. <laughs> but take it back to those times where um, you thought about the fact as when you were younger and that you stood up for things that, were, uh, that you believed strongly in. And it was from those protests that many of the things have come about that we have today. And so may we reflect upon that. And as in any good protest, we always have people who stand up and say things. And so now I invite, and we'll start with number one, make your way up to the podium, read aloud, and then two, and then three, and four, five, I think we go to nine. You will change your mind. You will change your looks. You will change your smile, laugh, and ways, but no matter what you change, you will always be you. Yay! Yay. <laughs> we are prone to judge success by the index of our salaries or the size of our automobiles, rather than by the quality of our service and relationship to mankind. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. All right. Capitalism does not permit an even flow of economic resources. With this system, a small privileged few are rich beyond conscience, and almost all others are doomed to be poor at some level. That's the way the system works. And since we know that the system will not change the rules, we are going to have to change the system. People fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. Nonviolence is absolute commitment to the way of love. Love is not emotional bash. It is not empty sentimentalism. It is the active outpouring of one's whole being into the being of another. Yeah. Yeah.
I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. History will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of socialization was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. Let's hear it for, for our readers. Yay! Stand up, those, hold those, wave those signs up. Let's wave those signs up. What do we stand for? Truth. <laughs> what are we excited about? Justice. Justice. What do we want? Peace. Peace. All right. Woohoo! Amen. <laughs> so thank you for taking a brief moment and kind of getting into a frame of what it might have been like before the revolution. And now we invite you to quiet as we present a reader's theater of Highlights from Dr. Martin Luther King. And I want to let you know that the things that you're going to hear have been pulled out of a lot of accounts of what was happening back in the 60s. Also, I want you to kind of understand that this is what we call colorblind theater. And this is the only time when talking about people that you get to say colorblind. Because when people say colorblind, they say, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't see race. Well, that means you don't see what's happening with a lot of the people around you. And you don't get that their lives are very different. So for today, we've got a colorblind cast. This first part is before the revolution. And before there was ever a Martin Luther King Day, there wasn't even a Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Bradley, you want to tell us? Michael King was pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church 
and a prominent minister in Atlanta. In the summer of 1934, King's Church sent him on a whirlwind trip to Europe that culminated with a Baptist World Alliance meeting in Berlin. He arrived the year after Adolf Hitler had become chancellor. All around him in Berlin, King Sr. was seeing the rise of Nazi Germany. The Baptist Alliance responded to that hatred with a resolution deploring all racial animosity and every form of oppression or unfair discrimination towards the Jews, toward colored people, or towards subject races in any part of the world. When the senior king returned home in August 1934, he was a different man, and he wanted a different name. He changed his name and his son's name to Martin Luther, after the Christian reformer. It seems that the fight for justice was in Martin's DNA. What if Martin Luther King had been a Unitarian? Would that have been possible? Let's listen in on an interview where Rosemary Bray McNatt, current president of Star King School for the Ministry, interviews Coretta Scott King. Got to hold it up all the way. Okay. I'm Coretta. Oh, I went to Unitarian churches for years, even before I met Martin. That's what Coretta Scott King told me in an interview I had with her, explaining that she had been, since college, a member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was popular among Unitarians and Universalists. And Martin and I went to Unitarian churches when we were in Boston. What surprised and saddened me most was what she said next, though I am paraphrasing, the gist of it was this. We gave a lot of thought to becoming Unitarian at one time, but Martin and I realized we could never build a mass movement of black people if we were Unitarian. From the very start of his theological training, Dr. King revealed a decided bent toward liberal religion. For King to have answered the call to a liberal religious faith, a faith that clearly resonated with him since his earliest days of graduate studies. However, it would have, made, it would have meant a fatal separation from the sources of his power a faith in a suffering God who stood with suffering people despite their mistakes and failures, a conventional love between himself and oppressed African Americans, the people who grounded his passion for freedom. Dr. King stood for nonviolent demonstrations. This belief was put to test on Sunday, March 7th, 1965. The place is Selma, Alabama. The date, March 7th, 1965, 
That's the day that came to be known as Bloody Sunday. At that time, there really was no such thing as a gathering for peaceful demonstration. The demonstrators had been trained to be nonviolent, but the authorities had not. Back on February 18, a young civil rights activist, Jimmy Lee Jackson, was killed by a state trooper inside a restaurant where Jimmy Lee was trying to protect his mother during a peaceful protest. The killing did not make national news, but the protest on March 7 did. 600 people began a 54-mile march from Selva, Alabama to the state capital in Montgomery. They were commemorating the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson. After the marchers crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Selma's outskirts, white state troopers assaulted them, knocking many to the ground and beating them with nightsticks. Another detachment of troopers fired tear gas while mounted troopers charged the marchers. In all, 17 marchers were hospitalized and 50 treated for lesser injuries. A national uproar occurred when footage of the melee was broadcast on tens of millions of television sets across the country. You may recall the famous photograph of John Lewis being brutally beaten by a state trooper. ABC News interrupted its television premiere of the movie Judgment at Nuremberg about the post-war Nazi war crimes trials to show footage of the violence in Selma. Soon thereafter, demonstrations in support of the Selma marches occurred in 80 U.S. cities, while thousands of religious and lay leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. and our own minister, the Reverend Fred Lachane, flew to Selma. In Montgomery, a U.S. district judge issued a restraining order barring the march from proceeding while he reviewed the case. On March 15th, President Lyndon B. Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress saying, there is no issue of states' rights or national rights there is only the struggle for human rights. We have already waited 100 years and more, and the time for waiting is gone. It's the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. And we have people here to report about their memories and about what has happened in Selma, and about honoring a Unitarian Universalist minister, James Reeb, who was murdered when he went to Selma. He is just one of the UU martyrs from that time in history. And now, our reporter on the spot, Dorothy. And now, for some color commentary from Selma on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Outside the Old Depot Museum, a red brick building showcasing historical artifacts from the town, there is an eight-foot thick granite monument with a black and gold plaque. The plaque features a gold picture of a man wearing a bow tie and glasses with a long description below. Quote, Reverend James J. Reeve, Reeb, 
an Army veteran and Unitarian minister from Casper, Wyoming. With us today are 75-year-old Alston Fitz, Selma's unofficial historian, who wrote the inscriptions. 76-year-old Frances Bowden, a white woman with white hair and hot pink pants, who works at Selma's bail bonds, right next to the street where Reeb was beaten, and Johnny Manuel, a 66-year-old black man with, black, with a black and gray goatee, who was 16 when James Reeb was murdered. Mr. Fitz, what can you tell us about the statue of Reverend James Reeb? Well, the person who gave it did not want to be the object of controversy, whether that be praised for it or attacked for it. I remember unveiling the monument about 1997 or 98. The anonymous donor funded the memorial because at the time there wasn't much in Selma commemorating Reeb. That is one reason why relatively few locals know his name. Nobody does. That's been 50 years ago. Most of the people that are here now weren't even born then. I suspect that the only leader people remember from the Civil Rights Movement is Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. So, Bowden wasn't wrong. When asked if she'd heard of Reeb, a woman behind a downtown checkout counter scrunched her nose and shook her head, as did a few others on the street. There aren't many people who remember Reeb and others, but Johnny Manuel does. What do you recall, Mr. Manuel? Could you stand up and tell us what it, what it is that, that you remember from those times, Mr. Manuel? You talking about James Reeb? He was one of the ones who came down to answer the call when Dr. King called. The white people who came to Selma, they were dedicated. And some of them probably had a sense of knowing what could happen. Knowing they could get spit on, hell beat out of you, or killed. So Manuel agreed that few people in town know who the martyrs of the civil rights movement are. He and Bowden think they should. I think they need to know more about Reeb and all the other people who lost their lives. I sure do. It's part of their history. They should know what happened. They should know who done it. Peoria, Illinois was represented in an incident that would make national news. Reverend C.T. Vivian was born Cordy Tyndale Vivian on July 30th, 1924 in Howard County, Missouri. His first professional job was recreation director for the Carver Community Center in Peoria, Illinois. There, Vivian participated in his first sit-in demonstrations, which successfully integrated Barton's Cafeteria in 1947. Studying for the ministry at American Baptist College in Nashville, Tennessee in 1959, Vivian met Reverend James Lawson, 
who was teaching Mahatma Gandhi's nonviolent direct action strategy to the Student Central Committee. In an incident that would make national news, Vivian confronted Sheriff Jim Clark on the steps of the Selma Courthouse during a voter registration drive. After an impassioned speech by Vivian, Clark struck him on the mouth, portraying Clark to the world as a racist. Again, a nonviolent activist is subjected to violence at the hands of law enforcement. Vivian was appointed to the executive staff of the SCLC in 1963, and when Dr. Martin Luther King named him National Director of Affiliates two years later, the incident that would make national news, Vivian confronted Sheriff Jim Clark on the steps of the Selma Courthouse during a voter registration drive. One of C.T. Vivian's most notable quotes is, leadership is found in the action you defeat that which would defeat you. You are made by the struggles you choose. There were many who heeded Dr. King's call to come to Selma. One story that isn't often told is that of Viola Luzo, who gave her life for the struggle. Miss Luzo was a wife, a mother of five, and one of thousands of people who marched 86 kilometers from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery to demand voting rights for African Americans. She was a Unitarian Universalist from Detroit, and she had devoted, she had devoted her life to social justice. Along with young African American man, she was helping to drive participants back to Selma from Montgomery on March 25th. Four white people in another car, three of them of the Ku Klux Klan and the other an FBI informant pursued Lulusi's car and overtook it and shot her to death. She was 39 years old. This is an excerpt from the CBS interview with Mary Lulusi Lillibull, who was 17 when her mother was murdered. She is now a social justice activist and an advocate for nonviolence. You were 17 when your mother died. Tell me about her. What sort of things do you remember most about her? Well, my mother was a different kind of mother in so many ways, from the things she taught us to the way she taught us. She was always a champion for human beings of any living thing. I've come to understand that her ability to interfere with suffering seemed to be the most important thing in her life. And she never hesitated, if she saw suffering, to take action, to do something to interfere with it. Tell me about her decision to leave your family in Detroit and drive down to Alabama to help with the Selma March. Was everybody in favor of her going? My dad, of course, was never in favor of mom getting involved in things that he felt or knew were dangerous. He said, you know, you don't have to go. It's, it's not your fight. And my mom said, oh, it is everybody's fight. When Dr. King came on, we watched our fellow citizens being beaten and run over with dogs. 
That wasn't over in the 30-second clips we see on the news. So to my mother, the real question was, why wasn't everybody going? There were thousands of people who took part in the Selma Montgomery March. Why did the Klan target her? One of the things that I felt, one of the things that I've often been told about the South, especially Selma, Alabama, is that the only thing that they hated more than the blacks was the white people that came to help them. And then I realized that the hatred I was getting on a glimpse, a glimpse of, was the hatred that the people my mother went to help lived with every day of their lives and continue to live with today. You go back to Selma quite often. When you went there for the 50th anniversary a couple years ago. I always told people I feel closer to my mother there than I ever did anywhere, even in our home in Detroit. And I realized why. My mother is alive there. When I first went there, I was received and loved and nurtured and taught and mentored. I was made whole again, and I thought the impact of what my mother did was so extraordinary that to this day, 52 years later, they would like part the waters for me if they could. The relationship established between Martin Luther King Jr. was one of nurture and teaching. As a faith, our connection to Dr. King bore fruit when in 1966, Dr. King was invited to speak at the Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly. His talk, Don't Sleep Through the Revolution, has as much meaning and purpose today as it did back in 1966. These were his closing words. We're going to win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. And we can sing, We Shall Overcome, because somehow we know the arc of the moral universe is long but bends toward justice. We shall overcome, because Carlyle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome, because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. We shall overcome, because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed will rise again. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of truth and hope. We will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood 
and speed up that day when all of God's children all over our nation and the world will be able to walk with each other as brothers and sisters. And then we can sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Thank you. The legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. encompasses influential decisions, monumental actions, and steadfast progressions of humanitarian rights that reach far beyond the civil rights movement. A leader of all people, Dr. King never chose fear, but always chose courage and determination when fighting for civil rights in the face of oppression, ignorance, and violence. He refused to allow prison, violence, or the threat of death sway his end mission. Instead, he stood beside his goal of achieving rights for all through nonviolent protests. Dr. King maintained a vision for a more diverse American where all people enjoying the benefits of quality. During a time when the opposition imp implemented legislation that withheld rights from people of color and expressed hatred through beatings and killings, Dr. King continued to take the high road. He realized that violence would play into the scheme of the opposition. He knew that violent retaliation would fit exactly into the assumed mold that many had formed regarding civil rights activists. Because of that, he constantly preached that nonviolence will ultimately allow the opposition to prevail. Dr. King also understood the impact of unifying the masses in the push for one common goal. Separately, attaining any significant progress would be a challenge. Collectively, he and other civil rights activists could affect policies and influence change nationwide. Dr. King's leadership contributed to the overall success of the civil rights movement in the mid-1990s and continues to impact civil rights movements in the present. While King and other leaders generated momentous strides for equality, the push for civil rights remains a preeminent challenge today. We continue to experience poverty in the inner cities. We continue to fight for equal pay regardless of gender or race. We continue to battle educational inequality. We continue to call for justice for all. Dr. King's legacy provides a staple model for how we combat inequality today. We cannot get comfortable in our current state. Too many people are relying on us to recognize and fight the inequalities that exist today. Dr. King's generation did their part. Now it's time to do ours. The next generation needs us. May it be so. <laughs>